Hello America, this is the Russian Embassy and please listen to the 147 weekly news podcast from the Russian Embassy. Main Naval Parade. The Supreme Commander-in-Chief has reviewed the main naval parade in St. Petersburg on Russian Navy Day. In all, sailors from the Baltic, Northern Pacific, Black Sea Fleet and the Caspian Flotilla took part in the main naval parade, in addition to more than 40 aircraft and helicopters of maritime aviation, more than 4,000 service members and 46 ships, boats and submarines. The President personally congratulated each crew on Russian Navy Day. Speech at the main naval parade, President of Russia Vladimir Putin, comrades, sailors and captains, midshipmen and officers, admirals and generals, dear veterans, citizens of Russia, I would like to congratulate you on Navy Day, a day commemorating Russia's heroic Navy and its unfading glory. For more than three centuries, the Navy has been guiding the sovereignty of Russia and firmly standing up for its interests. Today, we salute the guardians of maritime frontiers of the fatherland, the brave heroes at the sea, all those whose lives are forever tied to surface and submarine forces, maritime aviation, as well as fearless marines and all those who serve in coastal defense forces, who ensure the combat readiness of our Navy's units and, of course, all those who design and build new marine facilities. Military ships sailing under the legendary St. Andrew's flag and all the Navy's personnel accomplish the most difficult of objectives with honor. The unique seafaring soul of each sailor and officer is reflected in their impeccable service to our people and the fatherland. We are proud of the outstanding military victories of our great compatriots and their accomplishments which include the discovery of Antarctica by Russian sailors. This year we will celebrate the 200th anniversary of this global important event. Today we pay respect and give recognition to heroes of the Great Patriotic War, to all the generations of fleet commanders and sailors, shipbuilders and pioneers, thanks to the steadfastness, talent and devotion to the fatherland, Russia has forever achieved the glory of being a great maritime power, and this historical continuity is indissoluble. The Russian Navy is made up of ships equipped with high precise weapons, strategic submarine crisis and multi-purpose submarines, the newest airplanes and other aircraft, and with unique types of arms and specialized equipment. The technological level of our Navy's equipment is constantly growing. This year it will take only 40 new vessels and ships of different classes and just a few days ago Russia's three leading shipyards laid the keels of another six open sea vessels. The Navy's unique advantages and an increase in its military capabilities will be achieved through the board implementation of state-of-the-art digital technologies and hypersonic attack systems, the likes of which n- know no analogs in the world, in addition to unmanned submersible vehicles, all owing to very efficiently utilized defense resources. And of course, this is the people who have been the main force of the nation's navy. Not all are cut out for serving in the navy. One chooses this line of work, answering the call of the heart, and will be understanding that such a choice requires courage, 
discipline, an iron will and the ability to live and work within a close-knit team, the maintained loyalty to traditions, the loss of the Navy's undestructible brotherhood, which serves to unite sailors from the Baltic, Northern Pacific, Black Sea fleets and the Caspian flotilla. Today, in a unified formation, we are witnessing together both ships from the past and our newest vessels, including our most modern ships, all under the control of brilliant crews for whom loyalty to duty, adherence to maritime foundations and treasuring the memory of their ancestors are sacred woes, just like they left for the sea of their families and for their fatherland. I know this for certain, these sailors' successors, uh, the grandchildren and grand-grandchildren, descendants of victorious sailors, will never let the fatherland down, and will be loyal to the covenants of the decorated Pavel Nahimov, a great Russian admiral, and that a sailor must think first and foremost about the glory of Russia and the national fleet. Congratulations. Lonely the Navy. Hurrah. <laughs> Telephone conversation with U.S. President Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin had a telephone conversation with President of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Both President thoroughly discussed issues of strategic stability and arms control, considering this special responsibility of Russia and the United States for maintaining international peace and security. In this context, they reaffirmed the need for bilateral consultations on these issues, including the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. They also noted the great importance of Russia's initiative to hold a summit of the permanent members of the UN Security Council on a wide range of international security problems. The situation with the Iranian nuclear program was touched on. Both sides emphasized the need for a collective effort to maintain regional stability and the global nuclear non-proliferation regime. The two leaders expressed mutual interest in the development of Russian-American trade economic cooperation and praised joint efforts to contain the coronavirus spread. The leaders of Russia and the United States exchanged best wishes on the 45th anniversary of the Joint Soyuz-Apollo spaceflight. Both sides agreed to continue contracts at various levels. The conversation was constructive and substantive. Vladimir Putin had a telephone conversation with President of Ukraine Vladimir Zelensky at the initiative of the Ukrainian side. There was a thorough discussion of various aspects of settling the intra-Ukrainian crisis and the need for boosting the efficiency of negotiating efforts as part of the main contact group. The parties praised additional ceasefire measures that have been in effect from the 26th of July and that were approved at the group meeting on the 22nd of July. The presidents underscored the importance of unconditional compliance by all parties of the conflict with these agreements. The Russian side underscored the need to prioritize the implementation of the decisions made by the Normandy format leaders, including those that followed um, the December 2019 summit in Paris. Vladimir Putin pointed out that uh, the Verkhovna Rada's um, July 15th resolution on 2020 local elections contradicts the Minsk agreements and threatens settlement pro pro prospects. He also expressed grave concern in view of recent remarks by Ukraine's top officials 
on the unacceptability of some of the provisions in the package of measures and the need to reconsider them. The president of Russia especially noted that the position Vladimir Zelensky reiterated during their telephone conversation, namely that uh, there can be no alternatives to the Minsk agreements, must find its affirmation and practical actions taken by the authorities in Kyiv. The presidents also exchanged opinions on the situation caused by the coronavirus pandemic. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's remarks and answers to many questions at a joint news conference following talks with Foreign Minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Mohammad Javad Zarif, Moscow, the 21st of July 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, Foreign Minister of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Mohammad Javad Zarif, and I have held talks. We appreciate the fact that this is his second visit to Moscow this month amid the known problems that the coronavirus infection is creating for diplomacy. Prior to our talks, the minister conveyed a message from the President of the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, to President of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin. The message was transmitted during a telephone conversation and then we held talks at the Russian Foreign Ministry's mansion. We noted that satisfaction the rich bilateral political dialogue, including at the highest level. As you are aware, the two presidents had a telephone conversation on the 16th of July. Direct interdepartmental ties are expanding progressively, including contact between our respective healthcare ministries, which have been exchanging experience on countering the spread of COVID-19. We also share an understanding with our Iranian friends that overcoming the virus will be easier and more effective if we join our efforts. We noted success in promoting cooperation in trade and investment, which were made possible by the consistent implementation of the agreements reached by our respective leaders. We pointed out the unacceptability and the legitimate nature of the unilateral restrictive measures that are designed to block Iran's foreign economic relations. We confirmed our plans for further implementation of promising bilateral projects in energy, transport and agriculture. We praised the activities of the Intergovernmental Commission on Trade and Economic Cooperation. Given the coronavirus infection, we'll try to hold the next meeting in Russia in the autumn. We welcomed the interest of the regions in Russia and Iran to expand cooperation, which we will continue to encourage. We coordinated our approaches towards key global and regional issues. We have overlapping very similar positions. We discussed in detail various aspects of efforts under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. On the 14th of July, this important agreement was five years old. Indeed, the agreement has contributed to ensuring global stability and security. We're united in our understanding that we need to make every effort to preserve it. We are convinced that only equal and constructive interaction between the participants and within the will help preserve the compromise agreements enshrined in the UN Security Council Resolution 2231. We exchanged views on the state of affairs in Syria, including the outcome of the 
trilateral video conference of the heads of state, the guarantors of the Astana process, Russia, Iran and Turkey, organized at the initiative of Iran on the 1st of July. We agreed to further coordinate our actions in order to achieve lasting peace and improve the humanitarian situation in this long-suffering country. We also exchanged views on the situation in Afghanistan and related developments as they relate to the crisis in Yemen and the Middle East settlement and overcoming the problems associated with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. We believe the talks were quite satisfactory. We agreed to maintain close contact on all these matters. Russia's talks on space security arms control to start on Monday. Deputy Director of the Russian Foreign Ministry's Non-Proliferation and Arms Control Department, Mr. Vladimir Leontief, will head the Russian delegation at the coming Russian-U.S. expert-level talks on strategic stability in Vienna. Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov told TASS on Saturday. The Russian delegation will be led by Deputy Director of the Non-Proliferation and Arms Control Department, Vladimir Leontief, Rapkov said when asked by TASS. Um, the time frame of a new round of Russian US talks on strategic stability will be negotiated directly with US Special, Special Presidential Envoy for Arms Control, Marshal Billingsley, said Russian Deputy Foreign Minister. The time frame of the meeting with Billingsley will be agreed separately, not at the expert-level consultations, but in direct talks with him, the Deputy Foreign Minister said. Three expert groups of Russia and the United States will hold talks in Vienna on the 23rd and 30th July. The session are expected to focus on doctrines and potentials, transparency and verification, along with space security. Ripkov told TASS earlier that the time frame of a new round of talks with Billingsley largely depends on the outcome of a meeting of the working groups. Comments by the Information and Press Department on the 80th anniversary of the incorporation of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia into the Soviet Union. The ruling circles of the Baltic countries continue their attempts to promote a lopsided interpretation of the events related to the incorporation of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia into the Soviet Union 80 years ago. The Russian position on this matter is well known. It is based on an objective assessment of historical realities and a careful analysis of those events with reliance on archival documents and facts. In June 1940, becoming aware of the truly real threat of Nazi Germany using the Baltics as a bridgehead for the invasion of the Soviet Union, Moscow had to deploy more troops in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, in addition to the forces stationed there under 1939 mutual assistance agreements. In itself, this measure, which was taken with approval by the Baltic countries' authorities, was legitimate and did not amount to transfer of sovereignty over their territories to the Soviet Union. The subsequent incorporation of the Baltic countries into the Soviet Union was not unilateral either, but was carried by mutual agreement. The outcome of the July 1940 parliamentary elections in Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia was a natural reaction of the overwhelming majority of voters to support their country's incorporation into the Soviet Union, which they saw as the only power capable of resisting another aggression. History has shown that the Soviet Union prevented the implementation of Hitler's plans to turn the Baltics into a raw materials appendage of the Third Reich as 
set in the General Plan Ost and other documents of Nazi Germany. Under the plan, which was implemented up until 1944, the Baltic population was to be enslaved, Germanized, and partially exterminated. In 1944-1945, the Baltic peoples, along with the other nations of Europe, were liberated by the Soviet soldiers, quite a few of them Latvians, Lithuanians, and Estonians, thousands of whom perished in the process of doing this. The allegation of the occupation of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia by the Soviet Union in 1940, which the ruling Baltic elites are actively promoting, contradicts the interpretation of this legal term accepted in that period. The Soviet Union and the Baltic countries were not at war with each other, and the communications addressed to them by Moscow did not include a threat of war. Regarding the international recognition of the incorporation of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia into the Soviet Union, the agreements of the post-war structure of Europe reached by the leaders of anti-Hitler coalition in Tehran, Yalta and Potsdam did not question this fact. The matter was laid to rest in 1975 by the final act of the Conference of Security and Cooperation in Europe. According to the 1999 pilot project of the Council of Europe on state practice regarding state secession and issues of recognition, the majority of states recognized de facto the incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union, and some of them confirmed the recognition in their official correspondence. It should be noted that the recognition of the Baltic states' incorporation in 1940 as illegitimate would have put in question the consequences of this incorporation. For example, the addition to the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic of territories which were not part of pre-war Lithuania and which the modern-day Republic of Lithuania has inherited. Vilnius and Klaipeda it's not worthy that throughout their history as constituent republics of the Soviet Union, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia had their national governments, were presented in the Supreme Soviet State authorities and had all the necessary conditions for the preservation and development of their national languages and culture, and that until the Soviet Union's dissolution in 1991, authorities the body countries had been, through the assistance of the Central Soviet authorities, among the best economically developed and prosperous regions of the Soviet Union. Therefore, the occupation doctrine of the Vilnius, Riga and Tallinn authorities is a purely political project aimed at advancing all manner of claims to the Russian Federation and at falsifying that period of history. Ambassador Anatoly Antonov expresses his condolences over the death of Dr. Bruce Blair. It is with a heavy heart that we have learned that Dr. Bruce Blair, co-founder of the Global Zero International Movement, senior research scholar at Princeton University and author of numerous studies on arms control, passed away. His untimely demise is a grievous loss for the international expert community in the sphere of arms control and non-proliferation. Having served during the Cold War in the U.S. Air Force as a Minuteman ICBM launch control officer, Dr. Blair had a thorough understanding of nuclear security issues. Dr. Blair was a recognized expert in the field of Russia-U.S. relations. Our personal contacts were notable for their meaningfulness. 
Dr. Blair was deeply concerned about the current situation in the bilateral relations. He considered such miserable state of affairs to be unacceptable for the great powers. We express our most sincere condolences to the family, friends and colleagues of Dr. Blair. Dear ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention. Wish you a great week and please subscribe to our official channels in social media.